Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight. Our guest today is Bruce Davis. He's a teacher of world religions and a spiritual psychologist with a Ph.D. in psychology. Bruce has been teaching and guiding people in the art of silence for many years and together with his wife, runs a silent retreat center in California. He has studied with spiritual teachers around the world and is one of the world's leading secular authorities on the inner life of St. Francis of Assisi. He, in fact, lived in Assisi for many years, and he has now written a fictional book called Love Letters, St. Francis and St. Clare of Assisi Meet Pope Francis. In it, he explores the nature of the relationship between the two saints, but also the societal and institutional pressures on the current pope, and whether he can really renew the first Francis's promise of a compassionate and humble church that protects the poor and underserved. Welcome, Bruce. I'm delighted you could join us. Thank you, Miriam. It's good to be here. Tell me what attracted you so strongly to the life and personality of St. Francis. Oh, it started many years ago. Um, we, were on a, we, were on a, we were on a search for a true spiritual path. And for us, most religions were about, you know, they're more talk than example. And St. Francis is one of the great saints of all the religions, that he really took the real steps by step, and he left, you know, the busy modern world of his time and dropped out and went into nature and then went into silence. And in the silence of his heart, he had a big experience of God. And then after that, he started finding God in nature, finding God in the poor, finding God everywhere. And so as a psychologist, this was really interesting, that by going into his heart and, and sitting in the silence of his heart, he opened up to this big inner peace. And through this inner peace, he was not living with so much fear. You know, most of us live with quite a bit of fear. There's never enough. I'm worried about this and worry about that. So it was this deep inner peace in his heart that guided him, and eventually he became a great saint. It sounds a lot like Buddhism, dare I say it. Yeah. Francis was a Buddhist and a Hindu and a Christian. You know, it's very interesting. We lived in Assisi, Italy for 12 years, and pilgrims of all religions from all over the world come to Assisi. In fact, we started a peace center in Assisi, in the very center of Assisi, uh, with altars to all the world religions. And this was before 9-11. And then when 9-11 happened, it was really special being two Americans offering this peace center in the middle of Assisi where people of all religions would come sit in the peace of St. Francis. And so you're right. It is very Buddhist. It's very Hindu. You know, Muslims, people of all religions, they, 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 they can feel the heart of St. Francis. Mm. Tell us a bit more about his background. Uh, in the book, uh, you talk, you intimate that um, he became progressively more ill. Um, what, what was his story? Well, he grew up in a fairly wealthy family. His father was a merchant and sold clothing. His mother was French. Uh, he was sent off, and he was a troubadour. He was like a hippie, you know. Uh, you know, he was romantic, playing guitar for the pretty girls. 
there was a crusade against Perugia, which is the town near do next door. And on the first day of the crusade, when Francis was all, all dressed up with his father's uniform and horse and everything, he was caught. And he spent a year in prison in Perugia. He was not a very good soldier. <laughs> and in that year in prison in Perugia, um, you know, the facilities in those days, 800 years ago, weren't so great. And that's when he became ill. And he had many illnesses through his lifetime. Uh, but when he got out of prison, he began questioning life and questioning his purpose. And he just didn't want to live like his parents and, live and sell, you know, um, fabrics. He felt something deeper, something more calling him. And that's when he went outside the walls of Assisi, and he was hanging out with an old priest in the ruins of San Damiano. And one day he had this vision, this feeling of Christ was very present. And Christ spoke to him, rebuild my church. Well, like many people, he thought, well, that meant literally. So by stone by stone, he started rebuilding this old church. But it wasn't really meant literally. It was figuratively to rebuild the church of the heart, you know, to rebuild the living church. And that's what he did. In those days, the church was full of scandal, full of problems. It was mainly for the rich. They ignored the poor. And it was a lot about politics and power. And so Francis rebuilt the living church 800 years ago. And that's why it's so interesting now, for the first time, to have a pope call himself Francis, because the church has many of the same problems, and he's trying to do much the same to rebuild more of a living church. And so, um, in brief, that's the story of St. Francis. There are such parallels between his story and the story of Jesus at the time of the uh, political synagogue, you know, the, the money changers in the temple and so on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think all the great saints, but not just the saints, everybody on a spiritual path is um, looking at the dominant culture and saying this is not right, that we need to be more from our heart. We need more of service and less of wanting to be served, uh, more loving and uh, less fearful. And so I think it's not just St. Francis, but that's the path of the saints of all religions. You know, the Dalai Lama sets this example um, for the Buddhists, and there's a lot of great teachers in all religions that set a similar example contrary to the dominant culture. Mm, very much a saint for our time, isn't he? Tell me about St. Clair. What was her story, and how did she meet Francis? St. Clair came from an even more wealthy family than St. Francis, and she saw him first at a distance and just fell in love with his nakedness and his truth. And she could feel the steps he was making as he walked through Assisi and then left the walls of Assisi on his search. Somehow they just resonated deeply. So she ran away from home. Her father, with his soldiers, chased after her. And there's a famous story that she was so determined that the soldiers could not move her. She was going to follow Francis. And Claire was the first woman to start a religious order. So she was a very strong woman in her own right. But uh, Francis inspired Claire, and Claire inspired Francis. They were lovers without a physical relationship. It was just a deep brother-sister. You know, it's like they were both on the same path. And so I don't think Francis is possible without Claire, and Claire is not possible without Francis. They inspired each other very deeply, and there was a big bond, a big support. 
And this bond and support you can feel in Assisi to this day. The Port Claire sisters and the Franciscan brothers, they have a lovely community and a lovely sharing back and forth. Well, that certainly comes through in your book. The, uh, the book is written as letters exchanged between the two. Um, how did you come up with the idea of this device? To be honest with you, it started differently. It started with a, I write for the Huffington Post. And so it was Valentine's Day a couple of years ago. And the Huffington Post, you know, they're very creative. They're very open people. So I thought I'd write a love letter to my wife. And I would be Claire and put her as Francis. You know, it's a little too much to think I'm Francis and she's Claire. So I reversed the roles. And I wrote a, from Claire to Francis a love letter, how much I appreciate you and how beautiful it is to share the same path inside of simplicity, truth, and to honor all of life. Anyway, the Huffington Post did not publish it. But about three weeks later, when the new Pope Francis came on, they suddenly published the letter. And then I thought, wow, that's interesting. So then I wrote a couple more letters, one from Francis to Claire, another from Claire to Francis, back and forth. And the Huffington Post kept publishing these letters because it wasn't really about me and my wife. It's about Francis and Claire and Pope Francis and everyone who's on a genuine spiritual path asking these questions, you know. What is the real path? And how much of our heart are we willing to really feel and share with others? And uh, are people ready for real peace and real love? And do you think this new pope is a real brother? Do you think he's really going to be a pope of humility, truth, simplicity? So anyway, the letters just started coming out. And I had so much fun writing it. In about three or four weeks, I wrote the whole book. And this was the first month of uh, Pope Francis. And little did we know a year or so later that he really is a brother. He's doing the best he can. You know, he's in a very conservative environment, a very conservative church, and he's trying to walk the steps of Francis, to be close to the poor, to be close to the people that nobody else wants to see, and to have humility and more love in the church. So we see what happens. Are you personally Catholic? Yes, I'm Catholic. But the uh, book is written for people of all religions. The overwhelming feeling that I get from the book is a tender passion for union with God. Is is that what you what what were you hoping that the book would achieve? I think what you said is exactly it. You know, Francis and Claire and many people on a spiritual path, they open up to this sweetness inside. And in our culture, there's not much room for sweetness. There's not much room for innocence. There's not much room for just having simple joy. You know, it's really not important how important we are. I mean, fame lasts, I think we say, 10 minutes in our culture or five minutes in our culture. But it's much more beautiful to open up and enjoy the beauty in daily life the beauty of the people we live with, the beauty of nature. And Francis and Claire are examples of this. And so that was a book, and I use Francis and Claire and Pope Francis, that's really written for you and for me and for all of us to support us to enjoy more simplicity in life and the sweetness in life. 
and not be so hard and tough and judgmental. You know, our culture is very tough and very judgmental. And for children and for the child inside of us, it's not easy. As a parent, I look back on how I raised my children, you know, and, and kind of cringe. Um, you think that you're doing your best for them by providing boundaries, by installing discipline, by conveying to them your worldview. But in the process, you also kind of put fetters on them. You you constrain their own blossoming. And it is so sad. What I uh, love about the the tender connection of Francis and Claire to nature, to the world, is that it encourages you to blossom into your own person through that interaction with God. And God really is is everything. It's it's the plenum. It's all of nature. But as as Francis would say, possibly expressed to us so purely through nature. Yeah, exactly. You know, in 1975, I was in graduate school in psychology, and I wrote the first book on the inner child called The Magical Child Within You. I was looking at all the adults around me, all the therapists, and they were so serious. They weren't happy people. And they had problems just like the clients, just different problems. And I was thinking, you know, the culture is so serious. Where is the child? Where is the magical child, the innocent child inside of us? And that's how my whole path to St. Francis started. And uh, there were books and therapies about rediscovering the painful child. No, people would relive their painful memories. But what about remembering our innocence in our childhood? The joy, the playfulness, our spontaneity, our uh, creativity, our lightness of being. And ever since then, I've been in, interested in reinforcing and supporting our inner child, whether we're five years old or 65 years old. And you're right, unfortunately, in our culture, the child inside of our children gets squashed at a very early age. You know, right away, we want them to do math and read. What about right away learning how just to enjoy their heart and see more beauty in nature and in each other? You know, we don't teach them about compassion. We don't really teach them about generosity. We don't teach about humility, all these qualities of the heart. We teach them about reading and writing and arithmetic and all these other intellectual things, which are fine, but the heart gets left out at a very early age. And as a psychologist, I think this is the biggest tragedy of the modern era. You know, in our culture, we're so rich. We have everything, but we don't have our hearts. So what good is it to? And, um, and if you don't have your heart, you don't have your inner child, and we don't have real spirituality. So it's a big, it's a big problem in our culture. So I've been on a long journey. I'm no longer 25. I'm more than double that. And um, speaking out for the heart, the inner child, and for spirituality, like uh, the spirituality of St. Francis and St. Clair. And you call yourself a spiritual psychologist. Is that what you mean by that term? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I think psychology is just about the personality. And people can get in touch with their feelings and their thoughts and try to get clear in their thoughts. 
and uh, and they express their feelings, but there's something much deeper in us. And when we go further in our heart, we discover that we are actually spiritual beings, that we have inner peace, and that there's a big uh, reservoir of light and forgiveness and uh, even sweetness inside of us. And in modern psychology, we don't talk about that because most of modern psychology is very intellectual and it's very separate from the heart. But any psychologist that spends time with their heart, whether they're Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, or just deep in their heart, they've discovered that there's much more to the heart than just psychology. Psychology is only a step. It's not the whole picture. It's almost a mirror of the dichotomy between heart and brain, or heart and mind, that we see in society where people are so mentally driven and are really hard-pressed to connect with their emotions. Exactly, and that's why for many years I've been leading silent retreats in sacred places like Assisi, Italy, or now in beautiful nature in California, because in nature and silence, the peace and beauty outside helps us to feel more of our own inner peace and feel our own inner beauty, and so people come back to themselves. But now, these days, people are so plugged into media into everything that we do that uh, it's very most people are afraid to unplug you know just to disconnect and feel themselves and so more than ever i think people need to make retreats and come into the silence it's not so scary silence is really just peace and quiet it's nice to have a little peace and quiet and so as people unplug and receive peace and quiet they come back to themselves and they feel a little bit more whole a little less dependent and you know, running around the, running around all the time like crazy. Do you think it's possibly related to loneliness? You know, people coming home from the office often uh, to uh, an empty apartment, they, they turn on the media just to feel connected to something. I think you hit it on the head. I think that's exactly it. But I think the loneliness is because we're too much in our heads and we're divorced from our hearts. And so it's not really a question of our being with family and partners and friends, because even then we can feel lonely if we're just in our heads, because we're not really listening to each other. We're not connecting deeply with one another. And so I think you're exactly right. People go to work, they come home, and some people just leave the radio or TV or the Internet going all the time, watching for emails. And that's because we're separated from our hearts. And it's getting worse and not better. In uh, 1986, I wrote a book called Monastery Without Walls, and it was for the monk and nun and all of us, whether we're in a religion or not, seeing that we all need silence. We all need to feel our own mystic, our own inner mystic, our own wholeness, and, and enjoy our own solitude. And there's, that was 1986, and unfortunately, there's less and less silence now. I mean, the world's more of a noisy place, and we're more plugged into the noise than ever. And I, I, we have a lot of wealthy clients, not all, but some wealthy clients who come to our retreats. They have everything. You know, they have lots of, lots of success and big houses, but there's a place inside where they're very lonely. And that's mm-hmm. because we're separate from ourselves, our deep heart, our own inner peace, our own uh, beauty and solitude. And so you're, I think you're totally right on. That's exactly the problem. People are very lonely and feeling separate. There has been such 
a backlash against modern religion. And I think in the process, it has been a backlash against the notion of God. People can be very uncomfortable uh, even mentioning the word God, so they use things like source and universe and spirit. Um, In your book, Francis and Claire have a very deep and personal relationship to God. Probably in the book, it's personified more as Jesus, who is perhaps more relatable. In fact, that's, that's a question for you. Do you think that the notion of Jesus is more relatable to than the more impersonal notion of God? I, in the book, I try not to use religious terms, and most of our work is with people who are not into a particular religion. I use a lot about the words love and our beloved and deep peace and our Lord. I try to use metaphors that are open. And I write for the Huffington Post, and I'm part of that culture now. It's all right to write about everything, but nobody really uses the word God or religion. And even when I write in the religion section, you know, people are like, you know, you got to be careful how you write things these days. And uh, it's too bad because we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. You know, with all the craziness in religion, um, we've lost the spirit that's behind all the religions. And there's a beautiful spirit, and that's the purpose of religion, is bringing to our, us to our own spirit, our own deep spirituality. And so as a psychologist, psychology has become a religion because people have left religion. So as psychologists, we are bringing people into spirituality through teaching compassion, forgiveness, teaching people how to be present, how to come into their heart. And ultimately, these are just words for the same thing. You know, if a Hindu describes their guru and somebody describes Jesus Christ and what it, how it feels inside, the love and the devotion is very much the same thing. Although a Christian would say, no, this is not Hinduism. And Hinduism would say, no, no, this is not Christianity. But, you know, love is love. And peace is peace. And it's too bad that so many people are trapped by the words and we're not going deeper with what's behind these words because we're losing something that's important. Our culture... Is, is it's separate from God in a lot of ways, separate from real spirituality. And that's not good. It's not good for our children. It's not good for us. You know, it keeps us feeling lonely and separate, as you say. Well, it's kind of compounding the effect, because if you are physically alone or somehow estranged in your relationships and you do not have this sense of a personal God who loves you, then you are truly alone in the universe. You you need some kind of... Uh, I, I struggle with the kind of anthropomorphic version of God, but you need to feel that the universe is not indifferent to you, if you will. Yeah, but in truth, it's the exact opposite. There's a great ocean of love in the universe and we cannot know that intellectually but we know that experientially when we go into our hearts and we go deep in our hearts like in meditation or we sit in nature or in prayer the space opens up that's very accepting that seems to go forever and when you go deeper in that experience you just find a lot of peace and so what happens is that 
in meditation or in nature or however you find this deep, big reservoir or ocean of beingness or peace, when the normal life and things are difficult, you can still imagine and get back to that place. You can pray to that place. It's not far away. It's inside of us. Uh, in difficult times, you can seek refuge in that place. Um, you, you know, it's it's a part of us. And the more you experience it, the more that it's part, even close to us when we're in really challenging times. And so it happens that people have that sense of spirituality in their lives, then the daily life is not so difficult because there's something nearby. There's a neighbor, and it's my own heart. It's my own reservoir inside of great being. But in our culture, if we just live intellectually and you just believe or think one way or another, thinking and believing doesn't really do much, particularly when you're feeling challenged and lonely. But if you have a, an experience, like most people do have some experiences. They find it with a lover or with a partner or in nature or in a church or in a sacred place. Almost everybody's had an experience. And the question is, do we develop it and let it grow inside of us? Then it becomes like a partner. Francis and Claire had a deep partnership because they shared this deep experience of spirituality. We've had many people on our show who have had, you know, a near-death experience or, or a revelatory experience, such as you mentioned. And um, it, it has changed their lives. It has changed them forever. And as you say, it's something that they... Um, will draw upon uh, for the rest of their lives. And um, most of the religious, you know, the mystics, uh, religious practices, um, very much recommend meditation, um, which I think is another word for what you called going into the silence. It's going into this deep place. Um Is is this exactly. and exactly and and the near death experiences are very beautiful, but we don't need to nearly die to have these experiences. What happens in this near death experience when the mind totally closes down? Uh, they go into an incredible experience of the heart. And as a psychologist, I've been studying this, have my own experiences, and it's very interesting how powerful these experiences of great heart are. But we can do the same in meditation. We can do the same by exploring our own, our own inner qualities of the heart. We don't need to die physically. Um, we just need to be thinking less and our awareness be more deeply in our heart. And uh, it's very interesting how the mystics and people of all walks of life are coming together and realizing how similar our awareness is and how similar our experiences are. I think there's a, um, there's a new path that's opening up you know, more than a few years ago, these near-death experiences didn't exist. I mean, people would once in a while maybe would hear something, but now it's very public. There's best-selling books out. There's a movie out. You know, everybody's beginning to realize. And now people are meditating in corporations. You know, I have to be a Buddhist. Anybody can meditate. And so there really is a change of awareness coming, and hopefully it will be less mental and more heartful. And with leaders like the Dalai Lama and Pope Francis and other leaders, um, hopefully they're all going to teach us this, this path of more humility and grace and uh, our loving character. I have this fantasy of the churches 
Imagine, I imagine all the Christian churches starting each service and ending each service, Lord, make me an instrument. Now, this is the prayer of St. Francis. Mm-hmm. So imagine if people were just like, that was their mantra, Lord, make me an instrument. And then I'd go home and I'd be an instrument of peace with the people I'm having difficulty with. Or I'd go to work and be an instrument of service to the people who are having a difficult time. Or I'd go to my neighborhood and be an instrument of joy for those I know who are not having any joy. You know, I mean, it could be very powerful if this message really takes off. Uh, the prayer of St. Francis is one of my very, very favorite prayers. And what I like about it is the way it goes on, which is, you know, don't want, you know, f- love and charity for yourself, um, but offer it to others. And through that offering to others, you yourself will receive it. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's very special. So do you um, have any uh, plans to send your book to St. Francis? Do you have any connection um, to the church? No, to be honest, we live on retreat most of the time. We know a couple of priests, but they're not like in the middle of the church. They're sort of what we call wayward priests. <laughs> One serves homeless all the time, and the other one, you know, is a healing priest. So we don't have much connection to the church, and we're praying that anybody who does, that they pass it on to the church. We sent the book to a close friend of the Pope's, an important bishop, and he wrote us back a formal letter. Thank you for your recent letter and your gift. Uh, There was nothing in the letter that suggested that he read the book. Mm -hmm. So... uh, no, we just do what we can one step at a time, and there's radio shows like you that welcome us, and we try to spread the word. And uh, we're hoping that it, the book goes in the church, because we want to embrace this new steps of Pope Francis and the footsteps of St. Francis. And I think there's many people like us with the same prayer and the same desire to support the new pope. I think it very amusing that you called these priests who serve the poor wayward priests. You no doubt said it tongue-in-cheek, but still. I mean, that's still how the church is for most people. I mean, it's a very conservative place. And there's lots of beautiful, good people in the church. We met them when we lived in Assisi for many years. But the institution is still very conservative. And one pope is not going to change it. It's going to take a lot of people to do what they can do and to um, make a living church, a church of the heart, you know, a church that really is with people and not judging people and controlling people and telling them who is right and who is wrong. That's not really religion. That's politics. That's something else. The real religion is a living religion of compassion. And uh, yesterday I read the Pope stopped his car in the middle of the street and went over and kissed somebody who was um, very ill and shook hands with everybody in the family. I mean, that's the living church. Mm-hmm. And we don't see much of that today. Uh, but there's examples of it in the Christian church and in all religions, but it's going to be, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take many hands and many hearts. Well, to strike an optimistic note, um, Francis has been that way uh, all his life. And you and he was elected pope, so 
you know, it might be the expression of a deep desire in the church to mend its ways, if you will. I think there is, and there's not much room in the old church for the new ways to judge less and just love more. You know, and now he's opening the door so everybody in the church who says feel judged and doesn't feel good, they can, well, the Pope is on my side. And I can go speak to the priest, and we should try this project with these people down the street who have no work and no food. Or, you know, it's going to empower a lot of people to do more service, have more hope, and a much bigger heart. And so it's very important to have, this, have a new leader. And that's why I wrote the book, hopefully, to empower our hearts that we go out in the footsteps of St. Francis and Claire and have more joy, you know, and more, and just enjoy the simple life, you know, the little, the beauties of the moment and things like this. So I'm very hopeful. So do you think you need to be a mystic to connect to the mystery? Excuse me? Do you think that you need to have an inner mystic to experience this kind of connection to this, you know, rapture or joy? I think everyone has an inner mystic. And the moment we unplug and we're not so busy and we're just being in the present with our family or with nature, mysticism begins. And the deeper we receive each other, that's the problem in most families and most relationships. We don't really listen and receive each other deeply. We're talking at each other. But when we receive each other deeply, that is the source of our mystical nature. And when you read the lives of the mystics, they listen deeply to the silence within. And that's when a whole new life develops, a big life of the heart. So it's about receiving the presence of one another, not just our words, but feeling the presence of our partner, feeling the presence of our kids. You know, our kids are so beautiful. They each have a unique presence. And it really is not so important how good their grades are. Their presence is still there. And so we're all mystics. It's just a question of whether we're going to practice it. Mm. What uh, thoughts would you like to the reader uh, to take away from your book, particularly from the, the love letters between the saints? I encourage people to read. The people we know who are reading the love letters are reading one letter a day as an inspiration. And St. Francis and St. Clair were big saints. So we can learn a lot from them because most of us, we have a desire for a bigger life, but we don't really know how to do it. So if we listen and read about the heart of St. Francis and St. Clair, it can inspire our own hearts to lead a much bigger life. And a bigger life is not a life that makes us important or successful, but a bigger life that gives us more beauty, more uh, joy, more openness, more availability, more trusting. And uh, Francis and Claire had this deep river of trust inside of them. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping the book inspires each of us for a bigger life of the heart. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'd like to share is just invite people to be in touch with us, because there's many of us that we're trying to lead a life of the heart, but we're all doing, we're all sort of separate. And so people can be in touch with me at silentstay.com. And just write us an email, let us know how you are, or come visit and enjoy silence with us, but whatever. I think this community that really wants to bring more heart and less this frantic mental life in our culture, we need to support each other. So we invite people to stay in touch with us at silentstay.com. 
Do you think that your kind of uh, kind of ad hoc or or do it yourself community um, is a replacement for the church, or do you think that there is a place for the church today? No, no, I think the church is definitely community, and I think people need community. So we don't feel ad hoc, we're just another little community. Just my wife and I and a few people, we have what's called the little flowers, where people who are feeling this inspiration of the heart, and we have little flowers in like 17 different countries of all kinds of people. And we just sort of stay in touch and support each other. But there's many, many communities, and I think in this day and age, community is really important because the family is breaking down and people are lonely and there's so much stress that communities of all kinds, especially communities of the heart, are really important. And, and that's where we discover something bigger in life. The original church, uh, post-Jesus, was actually very small gatherings in people's homes. Do you think that this is the direction the church um, could well take, or is there still a place for the larger uh, institution? I think the large institution is fine, but uh, spirituality is really in simplicity. So I think you're right. It's in small groups, it's in families, it's in neighborhoods and communities. It's not about being big and making big things happen. It's the little things that we do every day. And so I think um, I tell people just open up your house once a week on Thursday nights and let anybody who wants to come, light a candle, sit 20 minutes just in silence and just be together for 20 minutes in silence. And afterwards, if you want to share a cup of tea for a few minutes, great, but it's not necessary. And my wife and I did this for many years in a little cottage in California, and every week somebody came, sometimes one or two, five or six, it didn't matter, but we just opened our door because we wanted to sit with people and just be with them, not necessarily talk, we just spend some few minutes together. And so I think community is very important. I'm trying to kind of wrap my mind around the centrality of silence. Um, is it just uh, to to kind of recreate or create the atmosphere for meditation uh, and, uh, you know, kind of internal connection, or is there some uh, greater purpose? Yeah, there's a greater purpose, because our awareness is filled with noise, and we're not even aware of it. All the thoughts going on, all the feelings, all the busyness, that's like noise. And so silence, particularly if you give yourself a couple days of it, it washes our awareness. It embraces the awareness. And so the noise is like the waves on the ocean, and the silence brings you underneath the waves. Most people, they just live in the waves of daily life. They're busy, they're noisy, they're watching the news, there's a lot of fear, and just bouncing on the waves of life. And as soon as you have a few minutes of silence, you feel underneath the waves in our own awareness, and there's an inner calm. There's a peace inside of us. And so silence is peace and quiet. You can call it silence or peace and quiet or stillness or quietude. I mean, there's many words for it. But it's really giving our hearts a chance to breathe instead of being thinking all the time, which is just really reacting to the waves of life. So all cultures, all religions, all mystics had a deep relationship with silence or peace and quiet because that would bring them underneath the busyness of life 
and to something much deeper inside, which is our inner heart. And I think this is important today more than ever. I can personally attest to that. Uh, we just came back from two weeks with family and friends in England. And, uh, you know, it, it's wonderful seeing the family and so on. But my very best time was when we went up to Scotland fly fishing. And I was all alone on the river. You know, I didn't, you know, just casting my fly. I didn't catch anything. Um that morning uh, and um just being at one you know seeing the deer across the way watching the um ducks floating by the the osprey it was absolutely magical and that morning alone on the river did more for me than two and a half weeks away i i hear you completely i was raised in a non-religious non-spiritual family but as a kid, they sent me away to camp in Minnesota, and I had experiences just laying out in the canoe in the evenings or sitting on the lake, and that was the beginning of my spiritual journey, just feeling something special in those times. And so I think we all have these experiences, and it's just becoming conscious. Yeah, this is important. I want this in my life. I'm going to do this more often. Mm. So I was really lucky as a kid to have an experience like you just described, you know, just being out on the water and just feeling it. Okay, to summarize, you have to connect to nature, go into the silence, and recapture your inner child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not so serious. I mean, we're, we're doing things all the time anyway, so why don't we choose something that's a little more fun and not just taking care of business, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so come back and tell us again about your website. Your website is Silent Stay. Well, one word, S-I-L-E-N-T, Silent Stay, S-T-A-Y, SilentStay.com. And we're on a beautiful hilltop near Napa, California, where people come for a few days of silence and wonderful nature. And then we teach this heartfulness meditation that helps people hear the quiet in their hearts. And this deep quiet in our hearts is very healing for all of our frustration and our tests and stress and, you know, all the things that we're going through. Mm-hmm. So we're having a good time. We did this in Italy for 12 years, and now we've opened it up here. And um, we're really inviting people to take the step and come into silence for a few days, unplug. And it's not so difficult. In fact, it's fun. You know, you just feel better not watching the email all the time and enjoying nature and feeling peace and quiet. Was it very different when you did it in Italy? No. In fact, we're in a place, part of California, that looks very much like Italy. People who knew us in Italy say, wow, you guys, it's like totally like Italy here because of olive trees and vineyards and the rolling hills. It's, it's hot like Tuscany and Umbria in Italy where we were. It's very much like Italy. And uh, so we don't have Italian culture around us, but um, peace and quiet is still peace and quiet. <laughs> That's a wonderful tagline. Peace and quiet is still peace and quiet. Okay. Well, um, Bruce Davis, the author of Love Letters, St. Francis and St. Clara of Assisi, meet Pope Francis. It's been delightful to have you with us. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Miriam. Everything good for you. Lots of blessings. And now we have a special guest whose message is very complimentary to that of our first guest. Dr. Mary Lou McIntyre is an author, past life connector, and fear buster. She helps those suffering from irrational fears to mend the past so that they can overcome their fears and live happy, healthy, successful lives. Her books, Fast Road to Happiness, Journey into the Now, Life is Forever, Get Used to It, and The Forever Principles, Listening to an Angel Voice in My Head, are all intended to assist her readers in the spiritual path and provide roadmaps to enjoy your life forever. Welcome, Mary Lou. I'm so delighted you could join us. Well, thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show to talk to you and your people. I love it. Well, you know, uh, I was really chuckling when I read your title, Life is Forever, Get Used to It. It reminds me of a book by Story Waters called You Are God, Get Over It. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And life really is forever, and it's very hard for people to kind of accept that. But once they accept it, it really changes their lives, doesn't it? Tell us about how you got into this area of past life readings. Well, I got into uh, the past life readings after... Uh, researching and uh, looking for God and trying to solve the mysteries of life. And I wanted to be able to help people beyond what the medical profession was able to do because there were so many people that sought my help uh, that, um, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't get help from the medical profession because it was, uh, you know, depression or fear of water or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I just reached out, you know, to the heavens or the gods or whatever to help me, you know, find a way to help these people. Well, now you you have a PhD in psychology, so presumably you were using the conventional approaches uh, until you got to this point. Uh, No, not really, Uh, because I saw that there were many limitations into the help that was uh, being provided, you know, through the textbooks. But the background, the education, helped me to realize the importance of releasing these problems. How fascinating. Yeah. And, well, what happened, Miriam, is I started having dreams of my past lives. And after a couple of weeks of this, I said, stop, stop already. I don't, I'm not interested in my past lives. I'm trying to cope with this one and help others cope with this one. I don't want past lives. Well, finally, they got through to me that people... Uh, most people that have problems, it stems from a past life, from a trauma experienced at another time in another place that they've just carried forward in their cellular memory. And if I wanted to help people, I had to learn how to do regressions. Well, that was back in a time when people didn't even talk about their dreams because, you know, they thought they would be 
uh, considered weird or crazy. So I had no place to go except the guides that said they would help me, and they did. And um, the uh, class of people uh, that I was working with at the time volunteered uh, to be like guinea pigs to see if I could really do it and, you know, polish it up. So when I first started, it took me about two and a half hours to do a regression. I would travel back through time and space with the people. I would take them with me, mm -hmm. and we would see what the problem was, and they'd be able to uh, hopefully just leave it there, realizing that it was nothing to do with their present lifetime. and. You know, back to the phrase, get over it. <laughs> it's kind of like the truth will set you free. Exactly. But some people, you know, they have to see what caused the problem in order to uh, be able to release it. And uh, so uh, I was uh, able to help them do that. Can you give me an example? You know, an example of, um, yeah. well... <laughs> Yes, like I was uh, giving uh, a lecture uh, in a bookstore. Uh, oh, this was years ago uh, in Dallas, Texas. And um, I was at the end of the lecture. I offered to give readings to people that were having, uh, you know, some kind of a problem that they didn't seem to be able to resolve and didn't want to live with. And so this a uh, young man stood up and said he had a dreaded fear of water, and he had no idea how that happened. He's never had an issue with water, but he's scared to death of it. And so uh, uh, I was able to get into his Akashic records and see that he had uh, literally walked the plank as a pirate. <laughs> and they were shooting at him and throwing stuff at him. And as he, you know, uh, fell off the plank uh, and was in the grounding process, he swore that he would never touch water again. And that's what got locked in his cellular memory. And as I was telling him this, he started shaking. And he said, I see it. I know it. That's true. And he said, Thank God I don't have to worry about that anymore. That's never going to happen again. And his wife, who was sitting next to him, said, Oh, thank heavens, now maybe he'll be able to take a shower. <laughs> and that's just, you know, that was just so unique. But it was, you could, everybody could just see the transformation taking place as I brought the information through. So that was quite fascinating. That really is interesting. Now, um, your latest book is called The Forever Principles, Listening to an Angel Voice in My Head. You actually had a little angel start annoying the heck out of you, didn't you? <laughs> yes, yes. She kept nudging me until I finally acknowledged her present or was able to you know, receive her uh, presence. And she said to me, you know, you've written two books about your life. Now I want you to write a book about some of my experiences. I've heard the call for help. 
I'm here to help, and I want you to be my typewriter. So I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that's pretty much how it went. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, really? I'm through writing books. Oh, no, just one more book, she said. (laughs) And so uh, I had never, you know, experienced anything like this or uh, had, you know, such a clear communication. And I knew it was outside of myself. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't my thoughts. And so I sat down at the computer, and she said, okay, let's go, and we did. And it took me about six months to, you know, get it finished and published, and there it is. Some of it, you know, Miriam, as I was, as I was typing it, I thought, oh, my God, I can't publish this. <laughs> this is just too weird. <laughs> and so at the close, you know, when we were all three, she said, now, don't you change or drop anything that I've told you. You put that in the book. So I go, okay. <laughs> you know, you know I, I think so. it is so fascinating that people who buy any yardstick are sane, solid. You've got a PhD in psychology. You study divinity. And, and you have a doctorate in divinity, in fact, and you start communicating with other dimensions. Do you see this happening more widely around the world in the people that you come in contact with? Do you think something is shifting in the world today? Oh, yes, I can definitely see it. Uh, you see uh, uh, movies about... Uh, Uh, the paranormal on TV and in the theaters. This never used to happen. Mm -hmm. People didn't talk about it, let alone think about it, you know. And, uh, but I think the knowledge of reincarnation and past lives helps to explain why we react from a subconscious level to people and situations and why some people have seemingly illogical fears unattached to the present life memory or circumstances. Absolutely. And that, you know, will throw somebody into a very deep depression or anxiety. Mary Lou, what's your website if people want to connect with you? Oh, thank you. It's www.marylouemcintyre.com. And that's spelled M-A-R-I-L-O-U-M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. Mary Lou, it's been such fun talking to you. I hope everybody will go to your website, MaryLouMcIntyre.com, and buy your book, The Forever Principles, Listening to an Angel Voice in My Head. Thank you, Mary Lou. Thank you so much. God bless you and yours. Blessings are always good. Thank you. You've been listening to New Consciousness Review Radio. I hope you'll visit our website at ncreview.com. And do join us next week when we have our Reviewers Roundtable again, talking about the best titles of the last few weeks. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (music) 